Okay. Okay, here we are. All right. I like the songs we sing. I like the decorations. I like all the sights and sounds of Christmas. I like the way that Christmas carries with it certain expectations and traditions. And even as we look this morning, as we traditionally do, at the old, old story of Jesus the Messiah born in a manger in Bethlehem, I want to remind us to be careful not to empty the word of its content and its power. Because there's always a danger, I think, as we look at things that are tradition, of them becoming just that, just traditions that we enjoy, just things that we do over and over, and we stop feeling the mystery and the wonder and the the sheer amazement at the fact that God himself took on a human nature and was born as a baby in a barn to initiate the process of bringing salvation to human beings. And I hope it never becomes for you and for me just a ritual devoid of the wonderful reality that God became a man. And it's, and it's God's humble announcement that salvation has come into the world in the way possible. Um, not with bands, not with royal parades, but on the floor of a stable, to a peasant girl, uh, to people descended from royalty but who haven't ruled as a royal family in 700 years. He came quietly. He was announced by angels, surely. But even that announcement is made to a bunch of lowly, stinky shepherds out on the hillside at night. And he put the stars in their place and he made the heavens to announce that the child is now here. But the child is nursing at the breast of a teenage virgin in a stable. And the wonder and the humility of God's coming is completely amazing and thrilling to me. You know, this is the God who made the entire universe who, as we saw in Sunday school in the Sunday school hour this morning, there are at least a hundred billion galaxies. That's with a B, billion. That's a thousand million is a billion. And there are a hundred billion stars in each one of those galaxies, at least. And our galaxy is just one galaxy among all of those, and that God that made all of that amazing universe came creeping into our world as a baby in the womb of a teenage virgin in a barn. Think about that. Just a second. And think about the level of humility that that displays with a God who made everything to come into the world in precisely that kind of a way. And I hope that as you look with me at Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, that it will cause you to worship God once more. 
just like the first time you heard it. You know, we, we love to read the Christmas story at my house. In fact, one of my sons is in the process of reading it to us. And he's working his way through all those names last night uh, in Matthew's genealogy and trying to figure out how to say things like Sheltiel and Eliezer and Mathan and Aminadab and all those <laughs> names, right? All those things that you go, how am I supposed to read this? But one of the things that we love about Christmas is reading that old, old story and remembering one more time. Like it was the first time that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And, and that He is God in the flesh. So I want to I look with you at this story uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to skip the genealogy part. Talked about that a little bit last week and how Matthew's genealogy reveals that, that Jesus is the son of David. And Matthew uh, goes to considerable effort even in the structure of his genealogy to emphasize that Jesus is the son of David in fulfillment of prophecy so that he might rule. As Jacob said in, G in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, he talked about how there was going to be a ruler who was going to come from the line of Judah, and how the, the line of Judah would continue to be the ruling family until the day came when the Messiah would rule. And so Matthew goes to considerable effort to underline the fact that Jesus is the son of Judah of the line of David. He has the right to rule, and he is the one who was to come, who was predicted. And in verse 18, he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and, she, and he called his name Jesus. God's arrival is so unusual, so contrary to what we would expect, that no one, not even the man who will raise this baby to manhood as his son, believes it at first. He has never touched Mary. Not before their betrothal and certainly not after. And she is a devout virgin girl and yet she is pregnant. How can that be? Who could have guessed that a miracle has occurred? Who could imagine that God, by His Holy Spirit's power, would unite the divine nature of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, with a human nature in a virgin girl's body? And yet, that's what happened. Because Joseph loves Mary, and because betrothal is not like our modern engagement. You know, back in these, in, in, in these days, 
when you were betrothed to someone, it was a legally binding contract. You were going to get married. And there was a period of examination and the working out of details between the families and so forth. But this was a legally binding contract, and the breaking of it required an official divorce. And so Joseph does the math. He goes, I haven't touched this girl. She's pregnant. Something has gone wrong. And so he decides he's going to divorce this girl to whom he is engaged. And to do it in a way that's quiet, he doesn't want to bring her public disgrace and public shame, but he's nevertheless not going to marry this woman. Because the only logical conclusion in his mind is that this girl that he loves has been immoral with someone, and since it hasn't been him, he's not going to go through with this wedding. But as he is thinking this through, and as he has decided this in his mind, he has a dream as he sleeps one night, and an angel appears to him, and the angel says, don't think ill of your bride. Because even though it seems incredible, even though it seems amazing, your bride is still a blushing bride. She is still pure despite her pregnancy, and God has conceived His Son in her womb. And this is not just any baby, by the way, Joseph. This is the promised Messiah. You're to give Him the name Jesus, which is a Greek this is the Greek form of, of, of uh, Jesus' name. The Hebrew form is Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And he says because He's going to save His people from their sins. You're to give Him a name to indicate exactly what kind of person this is going to be. That God is the Savior of His people. Now, there were lots of people in Jesus' day with the name Joshua or Jesus. It's a historic name. It's a good name from the Old Testament. You remember? Joshua is the one who brought the people of Israel into the promised land. But God is making the point as He speaks to Joseph in this dream that Jesus is literally going to be the Savior of His people. He's not going to rescue them just merely from some temporal set of circumstances that will be over during the lifetime of the people that Jesus is born into. Saying He's going to be the Savior of His people, not from circumstances, but from sin. And so you are to name Him Yahweh saves. And Matthew says, in fact, that this is the fulfillment of, of what Isaiah had said about another baby 800 years prior. In Isaiah's day, there, there were invading armies that were coming in, and he said, he said to Isaiah, there's going to be a baby born to a young woman. And before he is old enough to be a, a man of discernment, These enemies of Israel are going to be defeated. But Matthew takes that prophecy and applies it to Jesus. 
And he says Jesus is the greater fulfillment of that. Because he doesn't just save from an invading army. He saves from sin. He saves not temporarily in, in a set of circumstances in history. He saves for, from sin for all eternity, for all people, for all time. And he says, look, Jesus is the greater fulfillment that a virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah, when he gave that prophecy to Isaiah originally, he's saying when, this, when you see this kid, you'll know that God is with you. And that God will save you from your enemies. But Matthew is saying, no, no. It applies in a greater way with Jesus. Because it's not just that God is with you to empower you, or that God is with you to help you, or that God is with you in the midst of your circumstances. No, no. God is really physically present right here among you. You can see Him. You can touch Him. You can eat with Him. You can, if you're Mary, rock the Savior of the world to sleep. God is actually visible with you. He is the greater Emmanuel. Can you imagine the wonder and the awe of that revelation from God? Think about that. Think about being Joseph and told, you're going to raise the Son of God. I got enough problems with the kids I got. <laughs> now I'm going to raise the Son of God? Can you imagine what that must have been like? But Joseph heard and he believed. And so he did what the angel said. He took Mary as his wife, he raised Jesus as his son. And then he protected her virginity until after the days of her purification from Jesus' birth were completed. So that there would be no confusion as to who was the father of this baby. It was not Joseph. God. And Matthew continues. It says, now after, the wise, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent, to them, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, 
and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as we all remember, we all sing. And it was a, but it was not a natural place for Jesus to be born. Elsewhere in the scripture we read that, that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, and his mother were from Nazareth, which is in Galilee, about 90 miles to the north. But as Luke tells us elsewhere, it just so happened that they had to be in Bethlehem right at the time when Jesus came to be born. They were both descendants of David, and the governor of the area conducted a census registration, and everyone was to return to their ancestral homeland, and Joseph and Mary were both descendants of David, and the, his ancestral homeland was home city was Bethlehem, and so it just so happened they had to return there, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, I don't believe that was coincidence, because I believe that a sovereign God planned for Jesus' birth there, just as it was foretold in the prophets. And some wise men from the east came to pay homage to the newborn King Jesus, uh, who by this time is living in, not in a stable, but in a house. Maybe it's a house owned by extended family. Uh, maybe it's a house Joseph had bought because he'd set up a shop as a Bethlehem carpenter. We don't know, and really the text doesn't provide us with any details. But it's sometime after Jesus' birth that these wise men show up. It's possible that these men are Jews. There was a large number of Jews who re remained in Babylon after the exile. It's possible that some of these men were, in fact, trained by descendants of Daniel. You know, Daniel never went home. He remained in Babylon until the end of his days. And so it's possible that either his descendants or men that he taught continued to teach and to proclaim what was going to happen, just as the prophets had said. Perhaps they're Babylonians or Medes or Persians uh, who learned about the Messiah who was to come from Israel hundreds of years later. But they saw the stars that announced his birth and they came to pay homage in response. But very likely, these men, and there were probably likely more than three, uh, there's no mention of how many there were. I hate to break any mythic bubbles you may have. But there's no mention of how, how many there were or what their names were. Okay, You may have one of those little nativity sets. Uh, if you have the wise men at the stable, they're in the wrong spot. Okay, hate to pop that bubble too. But... Uh, you need to put them off to the east somewhere, because that's where they are, <laughs> all right? We don't know what they rode, okay? The text doesn't tell us these things. People like to fill in those details and make stuff up, but the Bible doesn't tell us that, all right? And there's probably a whole lot more than three people in the group. You know, Jerusalem at this time, particularly at feast days and so forth, there was a city of over a million people. Who's going to notice three guys riding into town? Nobody. 
there's probably a gigantic entourage because these men were learned, they were wealthy, they were prominent citizens in the place where they were from. And so there's, there's an armed guard and so forth that travels with these guys wherever they go. Like, you know, when the president comes to town, I don't know if you've ever seen that. When we lived in Iowa, we got to see a lot of politicians. And whenever they would go, there'd be like 60 cars, and they'd shut down the, hall, the, the whole highway, right? Because the president is here, right? The air, all, air, all flights in and out of the airport grounded because Air Force One is landing or taking off, right? When these guys come to town, it causes a stir, there are, people are aware that they have showed up. And when they get there, they come to the place where Israelite kings ruled, which was Jerusalem. They come expecting to find a Jewish king. But Israel at this time is not ruled by a Jew. It's ruled by King Herod, who is an Idumean, which is a, a Latinized form of the word Edomite, descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob. He's a foreign king, a Roman, a Roman appointee. Uh, he was a ruthless guy. He even slaughtered members of his own family, historians tell us, when he thought that perhaps maybe his nephew had designs on the throne, killed him, Killed some of his own kids for the same reason. He's a ruthless guy. So he calls together, when Herod finds out what they, why these guys are here, he calls together all the chief priests and the scribes and says, Okay, tell me where the prophesied Messiah is to be born. Because I want to go worship him too. He has no intention of doing that. But he learns from the chief priests and the scribes that just what the prophet Micah had said, that he would be born in Bethlehem, marking him as a descendant of Judah like King David. Here it says, find this boy. When you find him, report back to me exactly where he is so I can go worship him. And the wise men follow the star. And they find Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and they offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And these gifts were, I believe, God's provision so that when the family has to flee, as they will, they have a means of supporting themselves in a foreign country. Because Herod is a ruthless king, he's a bloodthirsty king, and his desire is to kill the newborn king, before he has a chance to pose a threat. The wise men are warned in a dream, go back a different route. Do not go through Jerusalem. Don't let Herod know where the, where the child is. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Part of what Matthew is doing here as he recounts this story is not simply giving the history and telling us what happened, although he is doing that. But he's talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all kinds of prophetic expectation about the coming of Messiah and how Jesus' own life, even in aspects that he can't control, is a representation and a recapitulation of aspects of Israel's history. So, so Jesus, for Matthew, is not simply the Son of God and Messiah, but he is also the ideal Israelite who responds with obedience and faith where Israel as a nation failed and fell into sin. And so, for Matthew... Jesus' family fleeing down to Egypt is very similar to the several times in Israel's history where when they were in danger of dying, they would go down to Egypt where they would escape and they would find life there. That happened with Abraham. That happened with Isaac. I mean, not with Isaac, but with Jacob. And that happened with Jacob's sons. They went down to Egypt, and of course, as we all know, they became slaves in Egypt, but then they were called by God out of Egypt and back into the land, right? Well, Jesus' life follows a similar path, that Jesus goes down into Egypt. He's taken there by his father to save his life, and after Herod dies, he returns to the land from out of Egypt just like the nation of Israel came from Egypt into the land. Out of Egypt I called my son. He says it's an, it's an analogous event. And in fact, later on in Matthew chapter 4, you'll see that, that you know, just as the nation of Israel spent 40 years in the desert, Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, how many days? 40. Why? Because Jesus is the ideal Israelite. And whereas they fell into sin and complaining and whining about no food and no water and no bread to eat and all the rest of this stuff, right? Tempted in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert with no food, very little water, and passes every test. Why? Because in Matthew's conception of, of Jesus' life as he's presenting the details. He's saying, see, look, line up Israel, line up Jesus. Jesus is the ideal Israelite who fulfills the Old Testament. And in addition to that, he points to Herod who slaughtered all of the male babies in the place where Jesus was born. And Matthew points that back to the days of the exile. He quotes Jeremiah. But a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning. Rachel crying for her children because they are no more. 
And he says Jesus' life ties back to the exile, too. You have these great bookend events in Israelite history. You have the Exodus, where they become a nation, and God brings them out of, e- out of the Egypt in slavery with His outstretched hand and His upraised arm, and they're brought in victory into the land. And then God tells them, I warn you, if you disobey my covenant, if you break my laws, then curses will fall upon you. And you, In Deuteronomy you read, Cursed will you be in the city, and cursed will you be in the country, and cursed will be the fruit of your womb, and cursed will be your flocks, and cursed will be your vines, and cursed will you be all the way out of the land. And at the other end of the Old Testament you read that's exactly what happened. That they fell away from God, they fell into idolatry, and they were cursed by God as the covenant curses fell upon them just as God said that they would and they go into exile and as they go into exile Jeremiah talks about it how the Babylonians came in and they slaughtered the babies of the Israelite people and he says a voice heard in Ramah weeping and mourning Rachel crying for her children because they are no more And he says, look, Herod is like the Babylonians. He is a foreigner ruling over Israel. And he slaughtered babies just like the Babylonians. And Jesus escapes just as the righteous remnant of Israel escaped during the time of the exile. Jesus is the ideal Israelite who escapes the slaughter. Jesus' life recalls not just the move to Egypt and the Exodus, but also the exile. All of the Old Testament is summed up in Jesus' life, as Matthew tells the story. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called Nazarene. Joseph and his family moved back to to Nazareth, their hometown. Would have been nice to move back to Bethlehem now that Herod was dead. But Herod's son, Archelaus, is now ruling over Judea and Samaria. And so it makes sense to get out away from where this guy might have control and power over them. And Matthew points out that this prophecy, that that this event of moving back to Nazareth fulfills a, a prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And scholars kind of scratch their head over that and go, wait a minute, there's nothing in the Old Testament that says anything about Jesus being a Nazarene. Nazareth is not even a town that's even mentioned in the Old Testament. How can this be? I think he's as a link here. It's a word play that Matthew is doing. Because the word in Hebrew for branch is the word nazer. And the town name, Nazareth, uses that Hebrew 
word for branch, Nazare, in its name. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it talks about the Messiah as, listen to this, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch that from his roots will bear fruit. He's making the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophets have spoken. He says, look here. It's like a fruit tree. I don't know if you've ever had fruit trees. I used to have some. I still have some. I planted some peach trees in my yard. I love those. I hope that they grow peaches this year. We've had them a couple years. We've been fertilizing and praying. Uh, I think the birds got what peaches were on it this year. But when you grow fruit trees, what happens is, is that when that sucker gets really well rooted, you start to grow shoots and suckers out around that stump, out around the trunk at the base. And they start to kind of come up, and you have to cut those off if you're trying to cultivate the fruit tree so that all the energy of the plant goes into the fruit rather than into additional shoots. Right? You've got to prune the tree, and in fact, the more you cut it, the better it does. But what you can do, actually, if you get a tree that just gets really old and stops producing, is just cut it down. And with a strong system of roots, sometimes what will happen is that a green shoot will come up from that stump and you can grow a new tree. And the prophet Isaiah depicts David and his house and his descendants as being like that stump. Because what happened at the exile is that the tree, the royal line of David is cut off. The family still exists, but there's no longer any king ruling over Jerusalem and Judea and the nation of Israel who's a descendant of David. Jeconiah is the last king to sit on the throne who's a descendant of David. And that ends in 586 B.C. And Isaiah says, but there's one coming who's going to be like a shoot from a dead stump. And it's going to be a branch that produces fruit. And Jesus, according to Matthew, is that branch. He's the tree that grows from the stump of David. He's the new, growth, the new growth, the king who will rise to reestablish David's throne. This is an old, old story. I think it's the greatest of stories. Because it's the story that we get to see how God's plan is unfolding a little at a time over history. It's like if you look at your Bible like a rose... How many of you have ever raised roses? Grown roses in your yard? When the flower first comes out, you've got that bud. And that bud, what happens with it is that it slowly starts to open. Right? And, and when initially, you can't see very much of it. You can see you know, a few outside petals. And you can see the color that it will be there and so forth. And as you read your Old Testament, it's like seeing that flower. And as your Old Testament progresses and goes on down through history, you see that flower start to open up a little more and a little more and a little more. 
And by the time you get to Jesus, it's in full bloom. And you can see everything. And you can see how God has worked His plan all the way down through history. And if you, you know, as we did this morning in Sunday school, look at the stars, you can see how God, who set the whole thing up, set it all up so that nobody could miss the coming of Messiah. And it's an old, old story, and we tell it every year. And, and there's really, it comes down to our response. Because this is an amazing story of a God who loves us, coming to redeem us by becoming one of us, that He might die for us. And each of us are faced with the same question. What are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with Jesus? And a variety of responses really are possible. First of all, you can just enjoy Jesus as part of the Christmas tradition. A lot of people do that. You know, they like Santa Claus, they like Frosty the Snowman, they like Christmas carols, they like garland and spiral ham, that honey glaze on it, you know. They like chocolate-covered cherries. They like the whole Christmas deal. And so Jesus, wise men, manger scenes, lights, carols, decorating, family, they're good with it all. It all kind of fits into a package, just kind of a nice little traditional thing that we do in our culture, and it's wonderful, and it's family-oriented, and it's fun, and there's good food, and it's just great. And lots of people kind of put... You know, Santa Claus, Frosty, Jesus, kind of all in that same kind of holiday mix, right? And for them, Jesus is just part of the holiday tradition. And that's really where some people think he ought to stay. Other people say, bah humbug to the whole thing. They hear that the American Atheists Association has put up a billboard in Times Square with two pictures, a picture of Santa and a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. And they're side-by-side pictures, and underneath the, the picture of Santa, it says, Keep the Mary. And underneath the picture of Jesus on the cross, it says, Dump the Myth. And a lot of people, when they hear about Jesus, that's what they think. I think those pictures are captioned wrong. I think that what makes Christmas merry is the fact that God came in the flesh to live a life as one of us and to die on a cross for my sin and yours that we might be able to celebrate truly. That God has come into the world. But a lot of people reject this. They think, you know, Santa's a fairly harmless myth conjured up by old stories of a 4th century Christian bishop mixed with a fairly liberal amount of Madison Avenue, and it's pretty good. But Jesus Christ on the cross, well, that's offensive. Because that says that I am a wicked person at heart who needs to be saved and can be saved by nothing less than the invasion of God into human history. But a lot of people nevertheless hear the story of Christmas and they reject it altogether. 
They say with Ebenezer Scrooge, Christmas, bah, humbug. There's a third reaction that's possible too. And it's the one that a lot of Christians have, that they are Christians, but they are bored by Christmas. They believe in Jesus, but they know the story so well that they no longer are amazed. They are no longer shocked and awed into worship. Because they've heard it all before, and it doesn't move their heart. They've heard Matthew, they've heard Luke, they've heard them read so often they can mouth the words as they're coming out of the preacher's mouth. But they're no longer amazed into worship. The last one, I think, is the only right response. It is to, as the hymn writer said, worship Christ, the newborn King. Amen? Worship Christ, the newborn King. This is an incredible story. And under ordinary circumstances, I would tell you, don't you dare believe anything that sounds that crazy. But it's true. It's absolute, historically verifiable truth. You can press the Bible really hard on this. And on all of the things that you can verify, what you will find out is is that the gospel writers tell you less than you would like to know, but all that you need to know to know that they are telling you the absolute truth about what really historically happened. It happens just like the prophets said. It happens just like the Scriptures record. It's not just tradition. It's not simply a comforting fiction that we tell ourselves. And it certainly isn't boring. Because this is the beginning of the great news that God loves you and me entirely too much to leave us in our mess. You know, a lot of people in our culture say, well, if God loves us, how come He condemns that sin or this one? Or or why doesn't God let us just continue in, in, in doing what we want to do? You know, the absolute most tragic, horrible thing that God could do for you would be to leave you alone in your sin. Because left to yourself, you will be consumed by your sin. And it will, as the Scripture says, bring death to you. Slowly but surely, it will consume you. And in fact, the Bible does say that there are people that God leaves alone. And He leaves them in their sin. And there's a very special place where you're left completely alone, devoid of God intervening in your life. It's called hell. That's what happens to you when you go to hell, is that God leaves you alone. He says, you'd like to be alone with your sin? Very well. Enjoy. But God, because He loves us, desperately, 
passionately, wildly, almost to a crazy degree, set up an entire universe to display his love and his amazing grace. And when we fell into sin, told us, you know what? I'm coming. Coming for you. And I'm coming into the world just like you. I'm going to experience life just like you. And when it comes time for my death, I'm going to go out not in my sleep, in my pajamas, like I'm hoping to go. Okay? I'm hoping to be in my own bed, in my PJs. Karen and I both wink out at the same moment. I think that would be great. Okay? Hope the, hope the coroner finds us before the dogs do. Right? Uh, I'm, but when God comes, He says, I'm not going to die like that. No, no. I'm going to die an agonizing death, suffocating on my own blood. I'm going to die hanging on a cross between heaven and earth so that, so that earth may be connected to heaven. I'm going to die tortured and bleeding so that my blood would cover your sin and you might be united with me in my presence in heaven ever. I love you too much to leave you in your sin. And so I'm coming. And when he came, he made sure nobody could miss it even though He comes in the most humble way you can imagine. When I was a kid, my mom, you know, she would get after us. We'd come in from outside. We'd be muddy, covered with grass and leaves and stuff. And she'd be, you know, we'd leave the door flopping open and the air conditioning going out into the neighborhood. And she would say to us, what was the deal with you, boy? Were you born in a barn? Jesus Christ is born in a barn, literally, born in a barn, amongst the animals and the feces and the straw and the dirt and the filth of humanity. Born in the most humble way imaginable. God creeps in. And yet He comes to save you and me. Two days from now is Christmas. Day, the last Sunday before Christmas. Tomorrow night, Christmas Eve. Come. This morning. Come tomorrow. Come Tuesday at your house. Worship Christ, the newborn King. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You love us too much to leave us alone. That You have sent Your Son into the world at just the right time, born of a virgin, born the offspring of the line of David, son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. At just the right time, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which all of us 
are living examples. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for him and for her. That they would not leave here not knowing where they will spend eternity, but would know for sure that they have every reason to celebrate the coming of Christ at Christmas because he came for them to save them from their sins. Father, I pray they'd put their trust in him, that he is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead to give them new life. And Father, I pray too for those of us who are Christians who have either today or long ago put our trust in the Son who was born in a manger, who died on a cross, saved from sin, and was raised from the dead. Father, I pray that we would worship Christ, the newborn King, the eternal King of kings, who reigns forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.